We are going through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest gospel, but it is really packed with meaning. Mark doesn't waste a lot of words. We're actually in the 15th chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 15. This is Friday of Good Friday infamy. And Jesus is being, has been uh, betrayed. He's been handed over to the chief priests. And then I'm going to invite Ray McCourtoff up to read the passage. Mark 15, verses 1 to 15, if you want to follow along. So Ray, why don't you come up? Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now is a custom <clears throat> at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man named Barabbas was in prison with the, with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then? with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they, all sh- but they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to him. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Thanks, Ray. didn't plan it this way, but this week's text kind of acts as a mirror text to a conventional Palm Sunday, right? When we celebrate Jesus being welcomed into Jerusalem as the king, this is a passage where Jesus is being rejected as the king. Before we get into the passage, though, I have been being justifiably hounded by our junior hires who are like, I have been filling out your sermon notes, handing them in, and months have gone by without draws. What we do with our junior high students is, is we say... In the sermon notes, if you fill out your sermon notes, put your name on it and hand it to me after the service, your name will go in a draw and we will draw one gift card per month as a way of encouraging you. We know that sometimes what we're talking about here isn't always right in the wheelhouse. of, and It's not designed to be just for a junior high student, but we really value that you're learning to pay attention, learning to wrestle with the word of God, and learning to engage and not just kind of go into cruise control mold and let your eyes glaze over. So it's a small way that we can say we're proud of you and we're happy and we're excited to see you part of this space and part of engaging scripture. So as you can see, I'm five draws overdue. So I did the draws earlier this morning and I'm going to read out the names and if you hear your name called, you won. And so just come up to me afterwards and grab your gift card. So Israel, Riley, Lauren, Adea, 
and Julia. So those are the five winners. Round of applause. Yay! That's good. That's really good. And often they do little doodles or they make little uh, nice frames on their sermon notes. Sometimes they even draw not-so-flattering pictures of me. doesn't matter, though. As long as you fill out the correct answers in your sermon notes, you still qualify. I don't penalize you. Okay, let's look at this text. Really, really rich. Verse number one, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, uh, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Okay, so it's Friday morning. Jesus has been handed over to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is a Roman governor of Judea. And uh, Jesus has been sentenced to death on the charge of blasphemy. But they need to hand him over to a Roman authority because at that time, the Jewish Sanhedrin wasn't allowed to execute uh, criminals. That was reserved, execution was, 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 was reserved only for Roman authorities. So they've got to bring Jesus to Pilate and make the case that Jesus is worthy of death. So if you don't know, here's just a little map of the Jewish world at Jesus' time. And uh, you can see these are roughly areas slash provinces. So Judea, down near the bottom, this is where Pontius Pilate kind of rules over. Most of Jesus' ministry happens in Galilee to the north, and that's going to play out a little bit as we see this text unfold because there's a lot of people in the Passover celebrations happening in Jerusalem in the province of Judea that are slightly unfamiliar with Jesus or have heard things about Jesus being misrepresented by people in that region. But again, the long and the short of it is the Sanhedrin is trying to figure out a way to get Jesus handed over to Pilate in such a way that he is going to be executed. That's their end game. Pilate in verse 2 says, Are you the king of the Jews? And that's really important to note. The Jewish authorities have brought Jesus to Pilate and their principal charge, the thing that they're putting in front of Pilate to say, you need to pay attention to this, is that Jesus claims to be king of the Jews. And so Pilate, of all the things that Jesus is being accused of, that is what Mark highlights that Pilate put before Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Why does that matter? A few things. Number one, there is already a formal king of the Jews. His name is Herod Antipas. He's the son of the Herod of the Christmas story. He rules as the king of the Jews. He's installed by Caesar as the king of the Jews as a way to kind of throw a bone to the Jewish people who have had this bad habit of always revolting against Roman authority because they believe that they're supposed to be under the um, leadership of a Jewish king and not a pagan ruler. And so Rome said, hmm, how do, we, how do we figure out a way to kind of placate them a little bit and cause them to settle down? Well, we'll install a king of the Jews. They'll be in our pocket. So they're under the authority of Caesar. And... Caesar at this time is Tiberius Caesar. Now, if there's already a king of the Jews, and the king of the Jews can only be installed by Caesar, you can imagine where things might start to get a little tense if there is a prophet, teacher, some kind of miracle worker from a northern province in Galilee. And Galilee was a hotbed for political insurrectionists. A lot of revolutionaries came out of Galilee. So this 
Galilean preacher prophet who claims to be king of the Jews. Okay, now we're starting to tread on um, claiming an authority that you're not allowed to claim for yourself. It can be given to you by Rome, but now there's this new king who is claiming that authority for himself, and he's bypassing the proper authorities, and he's certainly bypassing Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. And the reason why this is important is because often Jewish revolutionary movements, like through uh, groups like the Zealots that we read about in the Gospels, they were done, and the, f- the forerunner of the movement, the person at the tip of the spear of that movement, was often celebrated as a king, as a messianic king, a king who's going to overthrow the political regime, he's going to lead God's people into freedom. So the Sanhedrin brings, is essentially bringing Jesus to Pilate and saying, you've got a potential insurrection on your hands. You need to deal with this guy because he's claiming to be a king of the Jews. And that's not primarily a religious title when Pilate hears it and, and they're trying to play the angle of he's a threat to Rome. He, he's trying to instigate all these people to overthrow um, not just the Jewish authorities, but the Roman authorities. And we know that because in John's gospel, in John's account of this, it says a little bit later on, when Pilate was trying to set Jesus free, because Pilate's like, I don't really see how what he's saying is, and political insurrection is lining up. There's really no proof of that. The Jewish leaders say to Pilate, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar, because anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So the Jews are playing this political angle to say, you basically have to kill this person because he is saying things that lead people to believe that he's going to overthrow not just the Jewish authorities, but Rome and the Roman power structure itself. And so Pilate has to get to the bottom of this and he confronts Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replies. In the Greek, translators go all kinds of different ways with this because as much as I can discern in reading different commentaries about it, the response from Jesus is not a direct yes. It's slightly more nuanced and vague. And it might be helpful for us to think about it as if Jesus was replying, yes, I'm a king, I'm the king, but I'm not the king in the way that you're thinking that I'm the king. I am the king, but not in the way that you're envisioning it. And again, this is made a little bit more clear in John's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 33 to 38, where John gives us a few more detailed interactions between Pilate and Jesus, and this is what happens there. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says to him, is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and the chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? And Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight and prevent my arrest by Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Oh, you are a king then, Pilate says. And Jesus says, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate said. 
And with this, he, Pilate, went out and again to the Jews gathered there and said, I don't find any basis to charge him. Back in Mark, verse 3 of chapter 15, the chief priests accused him of many things. And so Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Dumbfounded. Pilate is astonished. He's in awe that all these slanderous accusations are being heaped upon Jesus and Jesus is just not rushing to his own defense. And that would be very unusual in a context like this because Pilate, if you're brought before Pilate, you're usually scrambling to save your own skin because what's at stake if you are standing before Pilate on the charge of potential political treason and insurrection is life and death. But not just any death. It's everyone knows what happens to people who plot political insurrection against Caesar and against Rome. It's the same story that's been played out literally thousands of times by this point in the first century, and it's been going on for decades, and that is death by crucifixion. Crucifixion was designed by the Romans to be a very public, very brutal way to die. And it was designed to be a deterrent. It was designed to advertise the might of Rome to anybody even playing with the idea that maybe there'd be a way that we could overthrow this oppressive regime. Maybe there's a way we could revolt and rebel and overthrow Rome's agenda and win, toss off these oppressive fetters. Crucifixion was a way for Rome to communicate very clearly, we are in charge, we are going to stay in charge, don't forget it. It was a horrific way to die. Here are some details about the crucifixion to help you understand its brutality. This is from the New International Version Cultural Background Study Bible. Because Jews saw nakedness as something uh, especially shameful, Jewish insurrectionists were almost always crucified Uh, nude, completely nude. And whether they were tied with ropes or nailed to the cross, uh, those who hung them, sorry, those who hung there weren't able to chase away birds or flies from their wounds, and they could not restrain their bodily wastes for the hours or days that it sometimes took for them to die. And you couldn't protect yourself from the heat of the day or the cold at night. And because of their position on the cross, Some may have died due to asphyxiation, but people just as much died from shock due to blood loss or dehydration. Crosses could vary somewhat in height, but crosses were often low enough so that feral dogs could eat the crucified person's feet. And this also gave the crowd, a low cross, also gave the crowd an opportunity to observe the spectacle from very close range and served to further humiliate the victim.
Can you see why Pilate is amazed that you wouldn't be scrambling to figure out a way out of a path that leads you down that road, a road that ends at a cross? Why isn't Jesus coming to his own defense? It, what, is he, what is he hoping to gain from his silence? I mean, to Pilate, it has to just basically look like Jesus is expecting to die. Does Jesus want to die? Because if you're not going to come to your own defense, that's what's going to happen. There's a certain inevitability that's going to take over at a certain point. But Pilate is also in a bind personally. He has his group, the prominent power group within the Jewish community, bringing a serious charge forward hey, Rome, we've got your back. You don't need to persecute us Jewish people. We're on your side. See, we're handing over a political insurrectionist. Like, let's, let's play nice together and we're, we're going to betray people like this who, who don't want you in power. We're fine with you being in power. So he's got this group bringing this charge forward that on paper does deserve the death penalty. However, whatever claims to kingship this Jesus is making, when he talks about his kingship and he talks about the nature of his kingdom, it's very clear he's not actually presenting a real political threat. Jesus is very popular. That's obvious. Look at his reception into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But his kingdom movement, it doesn't bear any of the resemblances of the violent movements that have been instigated by Jewish zealots. Everywhere Jesus goes, he doesn't leave a wake of dead Roman bodies. He leaves people healed, fed, restored. The blind can see, the deaf can hear, lepers are cleansed. He leaves a wake of hope and new life. And so from a Roman per perspective, Pilate can't really get the, the accusations to stick. He, Technically, he's claiming he's a king, but there's nothing here that I can really use to bring the full force of Roman law down on him. He's, he's innocent of the charges that you are bringing forward. Add to that that in Matthew 27, Pilate's wife sends him a message saying, don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So Pilate is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. He's convinced in his own conscience Jesus is innocent, and yet he's got this pressure group saying, this guy's against Caesar. You wouldn't want the word getting out that the governor of Judea let an insurrectionist go. Like, that would probably be bad if Tiberius heard that there was a new king on the way up, and Pilate kind of said, nah, whatever. We think you have to deal with this. So how's Pilate going to get out of this jam? Verse 6, Now it was the custom at the festival, the Passover festival in Jerusalem, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. So this had been going on for quite some time. It was done, again, to kind of placate the revolutionary spirit that swelled during Passover. We mentioned that a few months ago, Passover, a time of deliverance. Every time Passover came again, the Jewish people were like, maybe our Messiah is going to be revealed this year. Maybe this is the year where God's going to come and deliver his people, just like he did, out of slavery in Egypt and into a new land. There's going to be an overthrow. Maybe this is the year. And Jerusalem swells to multiple times its size, and all the people are there, and they're celebrating 
And so this was a way for Rome to kind of say, again, kind of throw them a bone. Here, take a political prisoner that we've captured, justifiably, and we'll give him back to you. And that'll kind of, a hero of yours, and that'll kind of settle you down. Verse 7, a man named Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The uprising can refer to many different Jewish revolts that happened between when Jesus was, I think, four or five and to this point now. Matthew 27 notes that Barabbas was called, was a notorious prisoner. He was famous. He was infamous, even amongst Romans. He's a figurehead of some kind of violent Jewish insurrection against Rome. He's a murderer. His insurrections led, his political revolts led to murder. So, so Mark doesn't say this, but he expects us to understand it. Because Barabbas is a political insurrectionist against Rome, the reason why he's imprisoned is that he's awaiting crucifixion. That would be obvious to a first century reader because that's why you're imprisoned. And either Barabbas is going to be sentenced to crucifixion today or they'll wait till after the Passover and do it in the following week. But he's likely in the final in his own mind, in the final few hours or days of his life. So he's on death row. He has been condemned, justifiably, under Roman law, to death. Verse 8, the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. This is your chance. If you're really backing this guy, speak up now, and that way I can say, hey, I'd love to imprison him, but... This is the uh, kind of the deal we have every year and the crowd wanted Jesus. So I'd love to execute him, Sanhedrin, but can't, sorry. But, and he does this because he knows it's out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. He knows this is a kangaroo court. He knows this is not a justifiable condemnation and crime that they've accused Jesus of. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. And so Pilate says, what shall I do then with the one who's called king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Now, it's a little bit too much to get into here, but sometimes you're going to hear that this crowd that's saying crucify him is the same crowd, rewind the clock, that on Palm Sunday when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. However, I think if you do a little bit of digging and you do a little bit of research, it's very clear these are two different groups of people. This is a crowd that likely refers to those who have been uh, a bit more distant from Jesus' teaching and ministry, probably more Judean uh, Jewish believers who have had their understanding of Jesus filtered through the Jewish authorities. So maybe in one of the maybe not one of the earliest, but certainly in the Gospels, one of the earliest instances of fake news. They've been hearing reports about this miracle worker doing a lot of work up in Galilee, amazing things happening, and the Sanhedrin has been filtering and making sure they understand, according to the Sanhedrin's perspective, what they want to understand about Jesus. They've been controlling the information. And this, this crowd, because they're kind of predisposed because of slanderous information about Jesus, it's very easy for the Sanhedrin to say, here's our chance. 
We know how wicked this Jesus is. We know how corrupt he is. We know how self-absorbed he is. We know how blasphemous he is. This is our chance. We could ask for Barabbas, or we could ask for Jesus. Let's ask for Barabbas, and that will automatically condemn Jesus to be, to be um, killed. And the other reason why we can say that these crowds are probably different is because throughout the Gospels, Jesus is almost universally shown to be immensely popular. He's adored by the general population for his teachings, his healings, his feeding of the crowds. People who actually hear him, who actually experience his miracles, aren't people who, at the, um, at the compulsion of some religious leaders, are just going to start crying out for his crucifixion. It doesn't, doesn't actually even make any sense. It doesn't make sense that all of a sudden, within the course of a week, they want to crucify Jesus after welcoming him as their king. So this is most likely a smaller group heavily influenced by the Sanhedrin and the Jerusalem authorities. Again, verse 12, what shall I do then with the one that you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. And they said, crucify him. But why? What crime has he committed? Said Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. They're they're past reasons at this point. This is just kind of a bit more bloodlust. Matthew 27, 24 says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead of an uproar, sorry, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. Pilate has tried in his own sense to figure a way out for Jesus. He's stuck now. He's sure he's innocent, but he's not willing to stand up to the Sanhedrin or to stand up to the crowds. So he washes his hands, kind of superstitiously, being like, listen, this is your decision. I'm releasing myself of the responsibility. I am not going to condemn this man to death. You are condemning him by what you're saying right now. I'm innocent of his blood. Verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowds, giving into peer pressure, caving when he could have been brave, Pilate released Barabbas to them and he had Jesus flogged and he handed him over to be crucified. I am not the first preacher, I will not be the last preacher to point out the obvious gospel theme in this story and that is the theme of substitutionary sacrifice. Mark wants us to see it very clearly here that Jesus acts as a substitutionary sacrifice that allows Barabbas to go free. There's an exchange that's happening in this passage. Jesus, who's innocent, is condemned to death in the place of Barabbas, who's actually guilty, and as a result, Barabbas is spared, and he gets a new life. The right just judgment that was supposed to fall on Barabbas now gets transferred to Jesus. And the freedom that should have been Jesus's, he should have been vindicated by Pilate, the freedom that Jesus has earned because of his obedience, that freedom gets transferred to Barabbas. So all these exchanges taking place Jesus gives up his life, and as a result, Barabbas gains his in the process. 
Certainly not because of anything good that Barabbas has done. He's a notorious prisoner and he's a murderer. So if you're Barabbas and the guard comes to your cell and says, you're free to go, you're not like, yeah, I saw that coming because I've been on good behavior for the last few weeks. It's like, what? This is an act of tremendous grace. Someone else has taken your place, Barabbas. Someone else is going to sit in that spot in the prison cell. Then they're going to walk the road to the cross in your place. There is something powerful about stories of substitutionary sacrifice. And, unfortunately, but it's a powerful metaphor, I mean, this week, one played out on the world stage. In France, police officer Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltram swapped places with a female supermarket employee who was being held hostage during a jihadi terror attack in France. And this is the write-up from the Chicago Tribune. After agreeing to the hostage swap, Beltram surrendered his weapon, but he kept his cell phone on, which allowed the authorities inside the Super U market in the southern French town of Trebes to hear what was happening inside. Sorry, allowed the authorities outside the supermarket to hear what was happening inside. And so thanks to his quick thinking, Special police heard gunshots inside the store Friday and stormed the building immediately, killing the attacker, but not after the attacker had already killed Beltram. Beltram's brother, Cedric, was interviewed by national radio in France, and his brother said this, Beyond his job, he gave his life for someone else. He gave his life for a stranger. And he was well aware that he had almost no chance He was very aware of what he was doing. And if we don't describe him as a hero, then I don't know what you need to do to be a hero. Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, said, Arnaud Beltram died in the service of the nation to which he had already given so much. In giving his life to end the deadly plan of a terrorist, he fell a hero. I think you have to be like a little dead inside to not be deeply moved by a story like that of substitutionary sacrifice. But that wasn't even for you. It wasn't even for you. When you realize that Jesus traded places with you, it really does begin to change everything from the inside out. It changes your your understanding of God. It changes your understanding of who you are, the value of other people. It it changes your view of the whole world. The Holy Spirit through Mark is making sure that we see that this is a microcosm of the gospel. Like, we're all Barabbas. Mark wants us to see ourselves in this story. He wants us to see that all of us were hostages to the forces of sin. All of us were condemned to death, justifiably, rightly. But Jesus offers an exchange, and Jesus took our place and says, I'll sit in that cell block, I'll walk that road to the cross, you go free. 
this king who descends to take our place and is treated worse than a slave, takes our place as a condemned criminal. But Mark wants us to see another layer to the story. I'm, I'm totally convinced of it. And I never understood this until I studied this passage more this week. And that is this truth. Jesus didn't just save us as Barabbases. He didn't just save us as people who were lost and condemned. He saved us in order to be Barabbases. What do I mean by that? Do you know what Barabbas means? Bar, son of, Abba, father. Son, son of Abba, more formally, son of the father. Through his substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus, who Mark presents as the true liberator, the true revolutionary, the true insurrectionist, the true son of the father, is rejected. The true son of the father is condemned so that you can I so that you and I can be free, but more than that, you and I can bear the title Bar Abbas, son of the Father. And that means that Jesus doesn't just save you from death and condemnation. It means that Jesus saves you into a redeemed identity and a redeemed life purpose. An identity and purpose that is rooted in establishing yourself in Christ as a son of the Father. Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 3.26. He says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Do not miss that he is talking to a mixed-gendered room, but he says, You are all sons in Christ Jesus. Why does he say that? And why is it not maybe wrong to talk about we're all sons and daughters of God, but it's going to be dangerous because we might miss a punch, a gospel punch here. He explains it one chapter later, Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And so, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Only sons in the first century can receive the inheritance. This is a very important gospel truth, that in Christ, spiritually, we are all sons. That doesn't mean the distinctive beauty of femaleness is done away with in Christ. It simply means that in Christ, anyone, male or female, has full access to God, full access 
to the blessings of God, full access to relationship with God, full access to new life in Christ, full access to the inheritance of the abundant life of this age and the life of the age to come. That's an amazing egalitarian promise in Scripture, although it's framed in a way that might appear to us to be gender-specific. But we can see coming through the lens of the Barabbas exchange, it's anything but. You are now all sons. You are all heirs, equal footing before God. God has rescued you from the dominion of darkness into his kingdom of light. And now you bear the title, Son of God. This is the gospel on full display. Though we're under the sentence of death and condemnation, imprisoned by sin and death, without hope in this world, Jesus came voluntarily and exchanged places with us. And he gives us forgiveness and restoration and redemption and salvation. And what does he take? He takes our shame, our condemnation, our judgment. And in Christ, our identity has been redeemed from notorious prisoner to Barabbas. Son of the Father. Paul says it a little bit more succinctly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have you responded to that good news? Have you responded to that gospel? Have you heard this message And has it caused you to wrestle with its implications? Has Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice so moved you that you have yielded your entire life to him? You've recognized that he's the hero of heroes. He's the king of kings. There is no love like his love. There is no grace like his grace. There is no hope like his hope. There is no salvation like his salvation. Let's pray. God, as we move into this week, move towards Good Friday and the triumph and the glory of Easter Sunday, God, may you just continue to open the scriptures to us to see things that the eyes of our hearts were blind to, truths that are transformative and that are amazing. Holy Spirit, um, yeah, open up our hearts to these things and light our imagination on fire to consider how we live differently in light of this truth. Thank you that you willingly went to this great exchange, Jesus. And what propelled you and compelled you was your love. Great love for us. So undeserving. But we receive this gift, God. And I pray for anyone here who hasn't, who has kind of played on the edges of putting their full faith and trust in you, I pray that this message and this picture of this exchange, would just, you, Holy Spirit, just drive it into their bones and, and cause it to be a splinter in their mind and just be something that they're churning over and wrestling with and would drive them to put their faith in you. And not just mere belief, but faith, full trust, a full life of surrender, God. Help us to live this message of hope in the coming week. Amen.